Hello, everybody, and welcome to today's episode of The Money Mitch Effect. I'm your host, Mitch Michaels, and I am delighted to have you with me on this sports podcast, episode 88 of the series. And today's show is going to be a good one. We are going to talk up first tennis and basketball with Todd Speedburner Robinson. We're going to recap the 2017 French Open, Rafael Nadal, his 10th title, and Yelena Ostapenko winning her first. The 20 year old Latvian shocking everybody as an unseen player. We'll look ahead to Wimbledon, discuss Nadal's greatness, talk about the 2017 NBA Finals still going on Game 5 tonight between the Cavs and the Warriors, and look ahead to the NBA Draft. And then I'm going to talk to my buddy Tyler Tesson. We recorded a hockey discussion right after the Pittsburgh Penguins won the Stanley Cup last night as well. We discussed Crosby's legacy, how the Penguins were able to go back-to-back, and much more. Todd Speed, Bernard Robinson up first, Tyler Tesson on deck. It's the Money Mitch Effect. Let's go. All right, Money Mitch Effect. On this Sunday, we're all a little sleep deprived. The French Open is over. Todd Speed, Bernard Robinson, thanks again for joining the show. Yes, yes, sleep deprived, uh, a little 2.30 a.m. call time, but uh, I'm wide awake now. So, Todd, we're... Uh, gonna start we're gonna talk a little basketball and tennis the uh the experts your expertise as we get going on this show but it's funny because the last time we did a recording in this room in the vo booth here at tennis channel we were talking about the australian open and we were talking about the, the, the impending final at the time federer and nadal and we framed it like a lot of mainstream media like well this is it this is the last chance for both how are they gonna do in their final opportunity so it seems Little did we know, little did we all know, that they're just going to be the standard bearers for tennis in 2017. Federer won Australia, and now Nadal just owning clay court season like maybe he's never owned it before. He wins the French Open today, straight set, destroys Stan Wawrinka. It was dominant, and it wasn't just the final, Todd. It was Nadal, vintage Nadal dominant from the start of this tournament to the end of it. It's uh, it's certainly Mitch, and... uh it's been a revival and, and really a very interesting kind of flashback uh, start to the 2017 ATP season because not only does Fed shock the world with the win in Australia, but then he goes ahead and sweeps the hard court season in the States, uh, the two Masters events at Indian Wells in Miami, and then uh, takes a big massive timeout, skips clay, and then Rafa says, uh, yeah, that's my department anyway. Proceeds to lose one clay match on clay all clay season and really talk about saving your best for last He came into the French, you know, there are a couple of people who are wondering like should he play Rome? He's played so much already, you know, and that's where he he had his one little slip up in the quarters versus team But you know, that's just uh, you know, yeah, maybe a little to burn out there But he knows how to calibrate his engine because he lost 35 games in this <laughs> tournament and I ran the numbers, and yeah, they and I are... I saw them. They were ridiculous. Like, we run through them again. They are absurd. <laughs> so he played 19 sets. I'm not counting the second set versus Cranio Busta. It was 2-0 when Busta retired. So 19 full sets. Now, only three of those... So in all those sets, he lost four games only three times. Uh, he lost three <laughs> games only three times. He lost two games four times lost only one game six times, and lost zero games three times. So no one took him to five or six. No one took him to five (laughs) or six. And so 
you get almost half his sets, nine of the 19, he won either 6-1 or 6-love. So it's really, <laughs> as another colleague of ours, uh, the infamous uh, Ian Panda Dunn, mm said it might be the finest two weeks of tennis he's ever seen and um it's just phenomenal at age 31 after you know going through injuries and and a pullback the last couple of years and joker demolished him two years ago here at the french and you really kind of thought well he's got his nine and he's done but wow not done at all yeah it, it, that it's hard to disagree that it might have been the two best weeks of tennis we've seen start to finish I also think, I mean, he just, uh, we were going over this before. I don't know how many break points he faced. Like, I, I don't know how many times on his serve. I Only one serve. in the final. Only I mean, one, and that was in the third yeah. game. And forget about it like, for just, the rest of the match. We can talk about his brilliance. He's got ten titles, so it's, it's hard to say which one was the best. But from a serving standpoint, I can't remember a stretch in his career where he's been that consistent serving. Well, and at 31, you know, some of his highlights in this match were really like circa Nadal, 20, 21 years old, when he's, you know, this speed demon just getting these ridiculous balls. He was doing that today. I mean, I, it's unreal, and we study the game a lot and are diehard fans, but it's unreal to us how a guy could be that much better on this surface than everyone else. Like, he's, and it's not just there is the mental side of it that it's Nadal, it's Clay, but even if you try to take that out, he's just better. He's just dominantly better. It's not even close. I got to be honest with you. I, you know, sometimes like to bet here and there. And, you know, usually yeah. usually I look for, you know, like a plus 200 or a plus 150 or a plus 300. I think there's an upset. Nadal was minus 500. And about, uh, about five minutes before 6 a.m. our time, I thought, you know, what the heck? This is a lock. There's no way Stan coming off of that marathon battle, which was probably the best match of the tourney versus Murray yeah, in the I would semi. Agree with that. Certainly those first four sets, I thought just there's no way he's going to beat the machine, especially the way Rafa just destroyed team, who was as confident as ever, playing his best tennis ever, had pretty much destroyed Djokovic in the quarters. And the way he destroyed team in the semis, I thought, there's no way he's going to lose this. Right. And I actually laid, you know, yeah. money, like five to win one, basically. But Well, you know. and you know the other thing, too, Todd, is that the miles weren't on him this tournament. We've Not at all. We've seen him lose tournaments that he's been the favorite in in his career. And a lot of it has had to do with having to survive marathons to get to the final, to get to a big match. And, you know, he, he was the beneficiary of Karina Booster retiring in a draw that, wasn't the hardest in the world, but he still just demolished everyone. And and I go, there's a lot of stats we can talk about. Ten times winning the same major, most that's ever happened in the open era. But just process that for a second. The same tournament ten times, an average tennis career, or let's say an above average tennis career, is going to last just north of maybe a decade at the professional level. Right. He's won this ten times. <laughs> yeah, on top of the sport, on top of his game, on, by the way, now, if you win Wimbledon ten times, which, by the way, no one's ever done. No. Martina won nine. Yeah. Um, but if you win Wimbledon, it's, you know, it's shorter rallies. It's boom, boom, kind of. Your serve can, you know, have make points short and easy. And he's not a big, you know, like, you know, serve at 135 guy. Yeah. So you're talking about the most physically demanding surface. And it's a guy. So every match is three out of five, not two out of three in the slam. And no girl or guy has ever done that in history. So for a guy to do it today's day and age on the most grueling surface 
it's one of the more amazing accomplishments in the history of sports, period. It is. And, and you mentioned you know, Wimbledon is the only thing you can kind of compare. And I say that because it's a seasonal surface. You only have a few months to get yourself into shape, and it, you don't have like the hard courts that you can play in different stretches. Way more there. seasonal than clay extends yeah. a bit, but, but grass does, is very yeah. tight. And clay does make it harder to win. They're longer rallies. It's more taxing on the body. And just the mental side of of having the motivation. Yeah, because he's clay, done it all. Like clay forces you to be patient and construct points, and he's right. doing that, you know, and nothing seven that, matches a tourney, now yeah. ten times. And nothing that happened today was going to affect our thinking he's the king of clay. If Stan beats him, if Stan destroys him, Nadal's still the greatest. No, that legacy was cemented. I don't know, maybe when he tied Borg or beat Borg with number seven. You know, it's like he's just padding the absurd resume that will almost definitely never be touched. And one of my favorite stats today was the third guy to win a major in his teens, twenties, and thirties now, joining Pete Sampras, who won the U.S. Open at nineteen years old way back when. Was it ninety-two? Uh, he won in 90. 90, wow. And then um, Ken Rosewall, and then the Ken Rosewall who won the French, I think it was 53 at age 18. I think it was either 53 or 54. I got I to give Ken Rosewall some love because had he not been destroyed by young Jimmy Connors, in, I think it was twice in Wimbledon and the Australian. Or yeah, was no, he was actually thirty. He wasn't in his forties yet. He wasn't because okay. that was seventy four, and I and it, I think it was fifty four that he was eighteen. Right. So he was like th- he was okay. almost forty. He was almost in forty a in slam little, final. You which know, the, the longevity we talked. Rosewell's about. longevity, total aside here, was pretty phenomenal. And actually, if you look at a bunch of the old old timers, because I have. Um, in a research project I'm working on, that it's Pancho Gonzalez oh, deep yeah. into his 40s was competitive. <laughs> Is there anybody in the in the history of the game that people would fear in a in a fist fight more than Pancho Gonzalez? Oh. Poncho, Everything I, about him is he's a tough. I got athlete, a little. I have a funny man. story about Poncho because my my uncle played the slams back in the fifties, and um, he was good friends with Poncho. They both grew up in Los Angeles, and in his late teens, he would rally with Poncho all the time. And so Poncho would destroy my uncle pretty much every time. Though my uncle did make the round of 16 at Wimbledon a couple times in his career. But one time he took a set off Poncho, and Poncho proceeded to destroy four rackets, and my uncle just got out of the way, didn't say a thing, and Poncho stormed off, and that was it for the session. And that that was Poncho. And that's just like rallying, you know, warming up. Like, that's <laughs> oh. just like a casual little nothing. But he didn't want to lose to my uncle. <laughs> no. Wow. <laughs> or anybody. No, it's, it makes sense. I know that Jimmy Connors said if he had to have someone play for his life, he'd have Poncho Gonzalez play. He, I've heard that, so, and that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, he was clutch. Still talking with Todd R- Speedbird Robinson on the Money Mitch effect. Last thing on Nadal, uh, and I, and I want to go back to the legacy standpoint, Todd. He's at 15 slams now. And he's looking spry. Can he catch Federer? And now he's second. He just passed Pete Sampras. Federer's at 18, though not exactly slowing down at this point in his career either. But is that in play for Nadal? Is it far-fetched? I, I have to say no. Um, as much as we've just glossed him so much for the last 10 minutes. Because if you do the math, y- you would have to, in my mind, if he's going to catch Fed, number one, Fed has to be frozen at, at 18. I, I don't think he's going to get to 19. But but Fed very well could, you know, oh, the you way the men's game is right Nadal's now. going to get to 19. Well, no, I, well, if I'm saying I don't, I don't think Fed will get. Well, oh. may, Fed might because yeah. I think Wimbledon this year. Could be his, um, you know, he turns 36 this summer. Mm-hmm. I don't know if he can do it on the hard court. 
And, you know, next summer he'd be like 36, almost 37, trying to win Wimbledon. So to me, maybe Fed could win Wimbledon in a month or so, whenever that, you know, less than a month, I guess, that it wraps up. But um, Rafa would have to get three to tie. I just don't see Rafa winning a non-French. I could see him winning the French next year. Yep. Two years from now, winning the French. I, I just think with his injury history, right. I, I got to believe that, you know, wow, you're talking, that'd be 15 years after his first almost. And I'm with you because, and I, and I use this as a prerequisite with Nadal in the warning. This has happened before where he's looked unbeatable and then he's gotten hurt. Something's thrown him off his game. Exactly. And the one that comes to mind is when he won his lone uh, Aussie Open title it, when he beat Fed in 09. And we thought, all right, this is it, changing of the guard. And then injury history, loses at the French and Soderling. Fed, you know, wins French and Wimbledon. It can't happen. It can't change on a dime. That's how tennis is. I just think that right now, the all-time great debate is so fascinating. Nadal, you can make a case doing good in the head-to-head, has played better than Fed, has had the best prime. You can also make the case, as I, as I saw on Twitter today, I think it was Renee Stubbs, say she still values all surface dominance. Clearly, Nadal is the greatest clay court player to ever live, but does he have the balance that some of the other greats do it's fascinating and yeah. i don't think we're done yet I, that's my big thing we're not done yet these guys are still playing yeah it's funny and when you get to that all surface argument you know that's that's kind of where joker hangs his hat as hey i'm right there because you know he only has one french he's got you know a million aussies i think it's six three uh Three grass courts yeah, at maybe Wimble. The most balanced resume. Uh, yeah, and he's got two two U.S. Opens, and he's made the final of the French. I think four times with one one win. It was 2012, 2014, 2015, 2016. So, and then in 2013, uh, he was the number one seed, and he stumbled into Rafa in the semis, and that was Rafa's tightest match in his life. The 2013 semi, where Joker's up a break in the fifth set. So, so he pushed Rafa, as we've just said the dominant, clear number one clay factor in history, he's pushed him the most. And yeah. and so That's Joker's very there there with that all-court. <laughs> that 2013 French Open was unbelievable. Was it a, was such yeah. a crime that they ended up in the same half of the draw. Such yeah. a crime. Well, yeah, and I would say one more French, and Joker's got, clearly got the most well-rounded. If he can find a way to win another French, which I don't think that he necessarily will, but that's if he had one more major on clay, then it's like he's literally won multiple... We could spend another 20 if we got into Joker. I will just briefly say, I know we don't have a lot of time on that, but I honestly have my doubts he'll win. I I just think there's such a mental thing. He's he's messed up like that. that, (laughs) To put it bluntly, that dude's messed up. The the way his game is calibrated, it's such precision. And I, I, I look at the way he plays now. On rally balls, he, he tends to just he's kind of more like he's playing more like Monfils even like just patty cake it back keep the rally going and then eventually you know he'll wear his opponent down and that works for maybe you know the 15th player and below but not the top 10 and he's not just going for that kill he's not as razor sharp I think on his return to serve the way he used to be and then the mental he just he seems to be all over the the fact that Pepe Amaz is still hanging out with him there's just all kinds of red flags. You it's know, a five-alarm fire in that camp. And he said he might take a break. Like, I don't – that, that's not what you want to hear from a guy at that point in his career where, you know, Nadal faced adversity the last couple of years. Fed in 2013 had the injury and, you know, had to regroup. 
you want to see that from Joker because we do think the talent's still there. And I know it might come off as petty, but I agree with Becker saying he needs a full-time coach. I know it was Becker. Agassi being there for a week isn't going to be enough at this point. Yeah, I, you know, I would like to see him get like a Brad Gilbert. I, I think mm. if you get something like that, that could turn things around. Like a no-nonsense. I mean, Brad Gilbert had the minimal talent and maximized it and has a genius mind for how to win matches um, how to you know make your game and working with a guy who has so much ability like Joker, I, I honestly think that would be a marriage that could rescue the situation. Beyond Brad Gilbert, I don't know what could save, and I don't even know if Brad could save because I- essentially it's in Joker and it's in his heart and it's in his head. How much desire is left? How much will? I mean, the the 2014 to 2016 domination that he had was really unprecedented looking at the numbers. He won about 95% of his yeah. matches and you know five of six slams and like double-digit Masters titles in that little window. It was just absurd. Yeah. And I think that kind of taxes you to, to just su- stay at yeah. that level so consistently for so long. It's not sustainable. We know that. I mean, it's it's up there with Macaro's 84, greatest individual season probably ever, and the run Fed had where he made like 10 straight finals majors in a row. Like, yeah, and was, in that stretch, yeah. Joker made, I think, 17 yeah. straight finals. I mean, it yeah. was just silly. It was silly. Yeah. The 2015 seasons, yeah, right up there with Max. Well, before, before we switch tennis talk to the hoops, I do want to mention the women's French Open and Yelena Ostapenko, now 20 years old, unseated, wins the French Open. She beats Simona Halep, who, as I calmly predicted last week <laughs> would be typical Halep if she beat two top five seeds and then lost to Ostapenko. Didn't think she would blow it though up 3-0 on a, on a chance to go up 4-0 in the second set lose that set in the match but be that as it may Elena Ostapenko we've been high on her as a sleeper in the women's field a young bright spot and she went out there and took her first major title. Hats off to her. She sure did. You know, there's a couple things to talk about. First, we can talk about, you know, her and her game, which is, you know, it's interesting. One of the analysts, I think it was Mary, was saying, uh, Mary Carrillo, was saying that if you only have, like, one plan, at least it's easy on your head because you just you only have one way to play. And her way to play is it, crush the ball. It, it, and then if that's not working, hit it a little harder. And so she just kind of, it was that classic, you know, the youth, you know, doesn't know better, you know, free and easy, didn't expect to be here, playing with no reservations, no, really like the opposite of the way Joker is playing these days, just very freely and and beautiful to see. I saw another stat that you like, tied Serena Williams for five sets lost in this tournament, and that's the most in, I think, the recent, or open era or something where she lost five sets, which is a lot in best of three. You know, Serena did it in the 2015 French Open, and Serena Williams, heart of a champion, say no more. She's the greatest ever. Right. But this 2019, she turned 20 in the se- on the semis to do it. She just clearly didn't let the nerves it, get to her. It's very interesting because I would say that the two of them lost their five sets in such different ways, and Serena would be more like like Djokovic because Serena in 2015 she's pressing for all-time numbers and trying to catch Steffi Graf's slam total and you know she had to battle back a lot of times I think if I'm not mistaken Serena lost the first set a lot of those and um, was down so Serena was like kind of pressures on not not playing as free and easy Ostapenko was like playing free and easy making a million unforced errors so she loses a set here and there but 
then doesn't mind, right. keeps going. And then at key moments, uh, you know, she was winning. The, f the funny thing, you mentioned that Halep was up a set and three love. So there was a series of blown leads that mm -hmm. cascaded all the way into the final. So Halep played Svitolina and was down a set and 5-1. And Svitolina completely gagged it. And Halep ended up winning that match. Svitolina, the round prior, was playing, I think it was Martik, who was, if I'm not mistaken, a lucky loser. Yeah, if not yeah. that, just a journeyman on the mm -hmm. on the tour. And Martik was up like 5-2 in the last set, and Svitolina came back. So, yeah. I just don't know if it's going to happen for Simona Halep. I know I'm not going to pick it to happen. This I, was such an opportunity. This is different than losing in 2014 to was Sharapova, like a, a peak player on tour. This is an unseated player. Should have been her time, and, and she had it. And like we were just saying, you have that lead, and so it, that's almost like a ghost that haunts you if you get in another final with a lead. That's the so, <laughs> oh boy, yeah. Well, um, whole well, new subject matter. <laughs> well, before we wrap tennis, Todd, uh, we got to look at Wimbledon. I mean, and, and it's fascinating on both sides. Just brief thoughts on the men's game. You mentioned Federer. This could be his time. Nadal hasn't made the quarters of Wimbledon since 2011, so this isn't a track record of recent history for him. You don't know what you're going to get out of Djokovic. Murray looks a little better. Stan's going for a career slam, <laughs> which is insane in its own right, but he's never really done it at Wimbledon. And Stan just added Paul Anacone to his team, which is very you know, which speaks to and Paul was a get to the net guy. So, um, you know, it speaks to his seriousness with wanting to uh, pull some better results on the grass. Djokovic, you know, per what I just said five minutes ago, I, I think he might, you know, get to the fourth, get to the quarters. And I think with the big boys, uh, he's just not mentally there like he used to be to take it. So yeah. I, I think it'll be interesting to see how Alexander Zverev does. Now, he won Rome went into the French with a bunch of fanfare and lost in the first round to Verdasco. So, you know, he's never been beyond the third round of a slam. And so if he doesn't do something, now he's a top 10 player. Mm -hmm. You know, if he doesn't do something at Wimbledon, it's like you start to wonder, well, okay, kid, you're 20 now. Ostapenko showed us that you're allowed to win majors <laughs> yeah. in this day and age yeah, at age cool. 20. It's, uh, it's okay. So... Um, I would hope that he can at least make the fourth round. Yeah. Um, and then I, I think it's pretty, I think it's extremely wide open. Yeah. Murray's going to be a lot more confident and after having. Too, making the final last year, grass court specialist. Yeah, Milos had a pretty solid um, French Open. You know, Carreño Busta outlasted him in a really interesting, uh, dramatic fifth set at the French, uh, what was that, fourth round. Yeah. Um, so Milos will be a factor and confident and healthy. He's had a few issues. So that's good to see, but um, I think it's pretty wide open. Absolutely. I think Murray will be. I think Murray would be one of my f top three mm, favorites for, sure, for, for sure. sure. Yeah. The women's side, though, how do you handicap that? Like, <laughs> if you were gonna better pick a draft, this would be very fascinating. I don't want to close the door on Kerber as a still number one. She did make the final here last year, and she's never been a good clay court player. So maybe, given the landscape, but. 
You know, I'll tell you another one. This would be a great story, too. Petra Kvitova, if she could get herself back into shape, it's probably a little too early, but she's won it twice. It might help <laughs> that Kvitova lost, what was it, second round at the French, because honestly, what was she going to do just on the clay at the French? It's like her first tournament back, you know? Uh, and good for Bethany Maddox-Sands to get that little victory under her belt. And congrats to Bethany for winning yeah. the doubles. And we'll be going for a career double slam at there, Wimbledon yeah. with uh, Lucy, but uh, Safarova. You know, Kvitova, yeah, you know, like she, I'm sure she went straight to the grass right from that second round loss. So it is so wide open that absolutely Kvitova, former champion there, a former two-time champion, yeah, if yeah, I'm not mistaken, yeah. would be a name to be reckoned with because she's got a bomb first serve and she's got a bomb forehand. And um, that works on the grass. I think Pliskova, that could be her major. Certainly, Pliskova well. is kind of like a Kvitova right-handed. Muguruza's yeah. made the final before. You know, Half's going to be falling toward the top. It's fascinating. And and Victoria Azarenka probably going to play wild, uh, be a wild card entry there. She's is in the she? I, I, I honestly didn't even know she was. I think that's was... the plan to come back. I know no, no Sharapova. That's an entire I can't see thing. Azarenka being a factor. No. Uh, I could see her, like, congratulations, you made the fourth round. But, like, beyond yeah. that, coming off a of pregnancy. It's pretty um, crazy. <laughs> yeah, I mean. I could see her eyes getting wide, like, "Oh wow, the yeah. tour is ripe, and no one's taking well, you know control." But we're not going to have Sharap- maybe the U.S. Open. She can be in better shape. We're not going to have Sharapova, which hey, say what you want. You don't want to see anyone out with an injury, and that's where we're at right now, where she's kind of ailing, and there's a lot of drama surrounding her. But at the end of the day, when she's back playing the game, the tour level is better. So we'll see if she can recover and play. It makes things interesting. Yeah. She's kind of like the dark knight of the women's tour. Because one thing we learned Everybody with her suspension, her. she doesn't have a lot of friends in the locker room. Not a lot of pals. No. Not a lot of, oh, Sharapova. No, not a lot of that. As a no matter of fact, in, in a sport where tennis, where bland rules the day, these girls were not shy about saying how not you know, yeah, unhappy it, they were that she was suspended and off the tour and got caught. I, it's like, more than that, though. I mean, Nick Kyrgios is, is a bad boy by a lot of <laughs> by a lot of uh, But he's liked but in, he's the liked in the locker room. So yeah, yeah. Just, he's a bad boy yeah. to umpires and yeah. to maybe coaches and announcers get There's, peeved. But he's a bro, you know. <laughs> Sharapova is yeah. not a bro yeah. to the girls. She's yeah. uh, the ice queen. She's her own little island. She doesn't it's mingle and mix. <laughs> and guess what? Maybe that served her, you know, maybe she needed that to maintain a competitive edge. And, you know, she was on top of the game for a long time, uh, you know, a, a top, what, three, four player for maybe eight, nine mm-hmm. years of her career. But in the end, you know, and she's got her. I mean, look, she's a she's so successful on and off the court. You can't really begrudge right. her style, her decisions. But and maybe she doesn't care that she doesn't have friends, but that is the case. <laughs> and my last thing on that would be, I think the French Open decision to keep her out of the tournament proved that no matter how successful and rich you are, if you're mean to people, <laughs> they will try to take you down. <laughs> and yeah. I think if she's a little nicer, she probably gets that wild card. Y- y- so. You know, you, she's not engendering a lot of goodwill, and yeah. um, that's we'll uh, that's one of the results, exactly. Right. Todd Robinson, Money Mitch Effect. Let's switch the hoops now. I wanted to spend the, the last you know, 15, 20 minutes of the show talking about that. The finals are still going on. The Cavs forced the game five down 3-0. They win game four, 137 to 116. But, Todd, the game was interesting for a lot of reasons. Uh, and I want to start with the performance by the Cavs scoring 49 in the first quarter. 
you know, they were 22 they were free throws. I think it was just like <laughs> 22 in the silly well, stuff. We're going to get to that side of it, but questionable <laughs> officiating, all yeah. kinds of weirdness. 86 first half points. They were on fire from three, setting records there. It was amazing, and you got to tip your cap to them. I don't know how sustainable it is, but the big three gave them 94 points, 86 in the first I, I half. I can't believe 86. I didn't even. Yeah. Wow, 86. My lord, that's a game. We've had NBA Finals where the loser of a game doesn't reach 86 points. They did it in 24 minutes. Wow. Yeah. Uh, the, the big three. I mean, I, I want to say LeBron Kyrie is a phenomenal yeah. offensive basketball 40, I think player. He went for. You can begrudge him his defense, his lack of playmaking and passing skills and assists, but my yeah. God, that man can score can and finish. get to the basket and just he can juke and jive you. He is. Uh, He's a treat. You got to live with some of the bad shots because he, he pours it in. He went for 40 that game. I just don't. I mean, 94 from the big three. I, I It's a great performance. They're going to play another game. But I can't see this happening ever again. No. Maybe in the history of the there game. There were too many outliers that? in that game for it to be replicated yeah. well, on the six, Golden State Love's court. not going six for eight from three in Golden State. JR's not going five for ten. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Jr. who's been ice cold, really looking like his career is kind of slip sliding away. Uh, really started with the regular season, then the playoffs. He's just been rather abysmal offensively, but um, the whole playoffs. But yeah, he had a little revival. I mean, the stars were kind of aligned for them. Um, I think Golden State. I think Golden State's going to be a little bitter because people didn't talk about it much when they when Golden State got up three zero. They talked about hey, undefeated in the playoffs. What a feat. But I was kind of shocked at how little play that got, whether it be online, in the newspapers, on air. I didn't hear a lot of people talking about the 16-0, and the chance for 16-0. and And the fact that now Cleveland spoiled that and pricked that balloon, I think Golden State might come out bitter and a little ashamed and angry at themselves mm-hmm. for, for yeah. letting Cleveland go off in Game 4 and come out with you gotta you got to give credit to LeBron and, and the Cavs and the, and the Cleveland fans for not packing it in. For having pride to be like, we're not going to just wilt away like a lot of people thought. If that was the Lakers down 3-0, yeah, the fans would have been like, oh, there's better things to do. (laughs) (laughs) And, yeah, Golden State's a little disappointing that they didn't come out chasing 16-0, that they just kind of slept walk. It's, I mean, they still scored 116 points. And I honestly thought they were going to chase that, you know, 4-0 sweep and 16-0. I thought that they were going to go, hey, let's seize it and really stamp history. Now, they were sloppy. You know, they got great play from Iguodala, who was the only plus guy in that game who played, you know. Amazing. He was a plus nine in just 21 minutes in a game where they out- got outscored but in the end by, what, 18 points or something He's like healthy. that. Yeah. He's healthy this year. You know, he was banged up with his back last year. But By the way, little Iggy aside, I just yeah. love this story. 2004 draft, Toronto Raptors are drafting. The year before, Toronto drafted Chris Bosh, and that made me a Toronto fan because I've, I've been a guy who really my whole life I just go from team to team. I don't have a diehard team I like. Yeah. I, I like players. So the 2004 draft comes along, and Iguodala slips to Toronto at I think it was number eight. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, they can add Iggy to Bosh. This is awesome. I love this. They drafted Rafael Araujo. Now, if you haven't heard of him, you're not alone. But he was this Brazilian stiff who was a four-year college guy, built like a football player. Look him up on Basketball Reference. Look at his career stats. The fact that Iggy went after him, it's it just uh, oh, its wow. a phenom- It's one of the bigger draft blunders in the history of sports. Yeah. But, yeah, Iggy's a great player, <laughs> has been a great player for, what, 13 years yeah, now. That's incredible. <laughs> 
<laughs> there you go, Toronto. Um, but back to this final series, I just I, I see Golden State putting the clamps down at home. I mean, Me too. all the outliers you mentioned, and we didn't even get to like Richard Jefferson going for 22 minutes and it not being a complete disaster. <laughs> the old man, RJ. I think he was like the 01 draft. I mean, he's been in the league a long I mean, Cleveland time. Cleveland still has issues. It's hard for them to play Love and Thompson together against this team. They still have a guy they're paying $85 million that's getting out-rebounded by Steph Curry. Oh, that's Tristan Thompson. <laughs> you know, that contract never made any sense, and little did we realize that the non-return on your money was going to come so quick. I'll, I'll say this, um, though. It, it didn't make sense. The, the only where, way it made sense to me is understanding that they were painted into a corner, and you had a rich owner. They had no. They were already over the. Are camp. any of these owners not rich, <laughs> by the way? I mean, I mean, the side there is rich enough that he doesn't care about the luxury tax. Because there are a lot of owners that wouldn't be doing sure, it. Sure, sure. But they were over the cap. They couldn't add any new players. You're allowed in this ridiculous salary cap structure that the NBA has to overpay for your own guys. So the options were overpay for Thompson, who gives them value, but would be horribly overpaid, or get nothing. Well, not long and after... LeBron was saying, you got to do this. Well, And, and not long too, after, so. Timothy Mozgov got $64 million for four years, so Tristan Thompson is a bargain, I guess. But of course, the Mozgov deal made people shake their heads literally as now, soon as the ink was dry. <laughs> now, the officiating, I, I hate to do this, because I know the refs are trying hard out there. But this was a disaster. The first quarter in real time took 40 to 45 minutes. 22 Cavs free throws, and yet somehow they didn't outshoot Golden State in free throws with 22 in the first quarter. Ugh. Uh, there was the Draymond Green got – should it, well, uh, I'll put it this way. They announced on the floor that Green got a technical in the first quarter. They announced over the PA. Apparently that was Steve Kerr's technical that the officials never corrected. Draymond gets one in the third. They announced he's ejected. He's not ejected. He stays in. That's one example of a fiasco. The replays, the, the amount of stuff that was reviewed. Stuff like that, it's like you got to get I mean, your basics together. And these are guys that, that were listed as bad officials on independent reports and, and newspaper articles. Uh, why are you not having your best refs I in didn't, every game? I did not yeah. even realize that they yeah. were listed as yeah. grading low yeah. in the oh, hierarchy yeah. where – I know the NFL. It's like they, they look at the best for the Super Bowl just, and the playoffs. I, why would you? I, I would assume the NBA would do the same. Like, you know how people think, like we think, like as fans and outsiders, like it's a 3-0 series. The NBA just wants to extend this series. Whether or not that's true, that's the narrative. The, the, why the conspiracy would you put theories. bad refs in there in that situation? It's just going to further. They could blow think. your conspiracy. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, you know the NBA, It's it's been a long, a long time now that officiating has been called out in the NBA. Mark Cuban calls it out a lot. A lot of people do. Uh, a lot of pundits do. Mm -hmm. And you kind of wonder how they haven't gotten their act together on just kind of getting these guys. I mean, the technical thing, like, like how do you blow such a basic, like, it's, at least that's like, like the blocking, yeah, tackling, nuts exactly. and bolts basics. Like yeah. sometimes calls are tricky and charge or block, and you know, but There's yeah, they, they got to get their act together on this. control of the game, like deciding what's a foul, what's not a foul, and then changing your mind halfway through in any sport is kind of ridiculous. But losing control, I mean, players were going at it. Both sides were frustrated. You can make a legitimate case and not be wrong if you're a supporter of either team that you kind of got hosed a little bit. And when both teams can say that legitimately, that's not a good look. Well, at least that balances out then, and so no one really got the net-net advantage. No, but it was just bad for the product, you know. <laughs> totally, yeah. totally. And, and yeah, exactly. So we'll Completely. see what happens at home in Game 5, but uh, for Golden State, 
but I do like them to close it out. I think Clay I mean, we're is, in agreement there. I, I think they might close it out emphatically. Yeah. If he keeps yeah. it alive, though, it could be interesting. But I have I no idea what the line is, but yeah. I think uh, we see a double-digit win. Could be, yeah. And uh, we'll see what happens at home when we expect the Golden State role players to play better. Uh, lastly, Money Mitch Effect, Todd Robinson, NBA Talk. we got to mention the draft a little bit because we're getting there. And I want to frame a question, question this way to you, Todd. If you're a Laker guy... If you were hypothetically a Laker guy, it's so hypothetical. Would any? Because I actually <laughs> actively don't like the Lakers. You know, that's we asked you the tough questions on this show. Is anything about the Lavar Ball dynamic? Would that be enough to scare you away? Like, let's take a, let's take out the fact that you might think other players are better. But would that be a hiccup for you if you're you told on Lonzo Ball the player? It's without a doubt a factor. And someone was noting to me, well, he didn't have any effect um, at UCLA this year. You know, St- the coach was asked, he said, there, there's no effect. Well, sure, there was no effect because Ball went to the team. Suddenly there was a buzz around UCLA. Ball was the leader of the team. He was the most exciting player to watch on the team. He, he Magical passing and stuff. So LeVar had nothing to complain about there. Um, it, the ship was sailing smoothly. Now, Ball in the NBA, you know, there's going to be some questions about his athleticism and his defense and a few things, his funky shot. So whatever team he lands on, whether it's the Lakers or another team, there's going to be opportunities for his dad and and maybe Lonzo. Lonzo seems to be a little more low-key and mellow than his dad. I think everybody on the planet's a little more low-key and mellow than LeVar. <laughs> but I, there's going to be chances and situations that LeVar might say, why isn't he playing more? Why mm-hmm. isn't this? Why is it? So I think as a team and as a GM, you have to weigh it in. Now, if he slips, and I could see, first of all, it looks like Fultz, it seems to be the de facto number one. Yeah. So I could see Josh Jackson going above him. I could also see De'Aaron Fox going about above him. Now, so if you draft four or five or six, you know, then you start to weigh, well, there's value here with Ball because yeah, he slipped he, a bit. And minutes. so you might weigh the dad in, but you go, geez, you know, him with the dad is better than what's remaining. Now, if you're the Lakers at two or Philly at three, you might say, well, Ball is so close to Fox in our minds or Josh Jackson in our minds that – his dad might be the X factor that you say, you know what, I'd rather just go with this other kid. And actually, both De'Aaron Fox and Josh Jackson are going to be de- better defenders oh, yeah. and better raw athletes. So so that might, personally, I would take both those guys over ball. It, it, yeah. But I think it weighs at the two and the three spot, maybe the four spot. At the five spot, ball, I think, can help your team so much, despite maybe a few of his drawbacks, that you, you take the dad and you just hope for the best. There's a Big five in this draft, we've kind of discussed. Fultz, Ball, in any order, Fox, Jackson, and uh, Tatum out of Duke. But I, I just think, I mean, it, it is, it's getting to be past the point of comedy with LeVar Ball and him butting in and him giving his worldviews and thoughts on dynamics. I, I get that you want to just kind of flush it out. It can be hard when L.A. is your backyard. And I, and I would say if he slips past L.A., my, my reservation with any of these other teams taking him would be he's just going to try to angle himself to the Lakers when his contract expires because he said he wants all his kids to play in L.A. together. Well, <laughs> you're looking way down the yeah. road there. So you're, you're yeah. looking three years down the road, and it might be that three years into his career, Ball has either A, cemented himself as what a great player and that team's going to bend over backwards to keep him, or B, 
the Lakers might go, whew, we dodged a bullet there. Yeah. Um, and I don't think he's going to be a tragic bust, but, but I, I think the he, right system around him. You know, he's not. It doesn't look like he's a great defender, which, as a Laker team that doesn't know how to play defense, yeah, it's hard to really, really consider him. Yeah. To me, I just, I'd honestly be surprised if the Lakers took him. I just I'm think not, De'Aaron yeah, Fox huh. and Josh Jackson. So, this is my personal opinion. It's either going to be him or Josh Jackson. Because if they're going to go guard, they're going to go Lonzo Ball. I think the debate could be Jackson might be a better scheme, make, get a player for the wing, get someone more physical who can defend better. If they take Lonzo Ball, they're going to need to probably move D'Angelo Russell at some point because that backcourt is just not going to cut it defensively. Yeah. But I agree. It, I would take Jackson. And John Wall has said, and of course they're both Kentucky guys, but he said that Darren Fox reminds him of himself. Um, and, and I would certainly build wise athleticism. I don't know that Wall is pretty. Um, Wall has turned himself into a magician passer, mm-hmm. which you know it's it's easy if you're a raw athlete, you're born with it pretty much, and you, you just have what you have. But he has become a supreme passer, shooting, you know, now and then it's maybe a little better than it was a few years ago. So, um, you know, if he can develop into, I would say, 80%, if De'Aaron Fox could be 80%, 85% of the player Wall is, that's the pick. Yeah, and Fox took it to Ball. Took it to him when it counts. Yeah. Yeah, when it counts. We'll see. I mean, I just I think Jackson might be a better look for them. But if they go ball and they want to flip, maybe they want to flip Russell in general. There's other good picks in this draft, not just the five we mentioned. I would if we can get another lottery pick out of Russell in a package or something. I I'm sure that if we were privy to Laker um, top brass meetings, yeah. that you know, if anybody was interested in D'Angelo Russell, the Lakers would be all ears. Um, you know, they would give him away for a song. Yeah. But I think if, if there's a deal out there, if a team covets him, and he has some skills and all, yeah. I think they would certainly entertain that deal. Certainly yeah. sitting where they are, able to you know, draft another guard who's you know, got some upside. So, Todd, who else do you like in this draft outside of those big guys? Are there anybody else outside of the five we mentioned? that I kind of like the NC State point guard, yeah. uh, Smith. I like him. He, he seems to be slated around the 8, 9, 10 spot. I think um, potentially if there's a little run on points, I mean, the way the NBA is going, it's just a guard-heavy league and, and guard-dominant, it seems. Mm-hmm. Um, a team, I could see him hopping up to the 6 spot or something like that. Malik Monk, I worry about as much as he can score. Does one thing and he great, can shoot, but, that's it. That's but he's a little undersized too. Yeah. And he's a pure, he's an off guard. Um, he's not, he's not gonna play the point for you. you. Put him in the right system. I think he can really it, shine. You need someone that can get he can ready. shine. But the NBA's seen these kinds of guys, and if you're six three and a shooting guard, wow. I mean, like look at Ben Gordon. He was a six three <laughs> shooting guard. Now he had his moments and this and that, but. You know, he, yeah. he had his peak, and, you know, he could score you 20 points. He didn't really assist much. He didn't rebound much. His defense was uh-huh. okay. And Ben Gordon was a great athlete like Malik Monk. Well, so I think that's kind of the cautionary tale I like, of Malik. I do like Justin Jackson on North Carolina. I know he's a junior, and that's, like, ancient now. But I think he can play. He played on a national level, was the catalyst to a title. Maybe not the best player in that Kentucky game in the Elite Eight, but right up there. 
So yeah, you I would, know, I would take. He's not going to go till mid first round, but I think you're getting great value out of him. And, and that's long, how you get. Arm. That's how you get value in the draft. Um, like last year, Thonmaker was value because value was because people had no clue what he would do against top competition. Or how old he was? <laughs> or yeah, the age thing. So so there was value there, and that's how you get value. So in this case with. With Jackson, you know, if you're a junior or a senior, it's like NBA is scared of you. It's like you have a disease. The best example of that and where it burned the NBA is Norman Powell on the Raptors, back to Toronto. He went in the middle of the second round because he was a senior at UCLA. But the guy's athleticism, <laughs> Draymond Green, but, but with Norman Powell, his athleticism jumped out at you as soon as you watched right. 10 seconds yeah. of his footage. You thought, not only is he definitely an NBA athlete, he's an elite NBA athlete. So to me, the fact that he slipped to the second, I was just shaking my head and sure, like on draft day because I was like, wait a second, this guy is like, you know, he's built, he's tough. And then you find out he's a solid guy and all that. And he's, you know, he's a top, he's a top reserve and he should be a starter one day. And so, my, And my counter would be, not counter to you, but counter to that whole thought process is that, yeah, they, they have less years potentially in their peak, but they're ready to go right now quicker than these projects that come in and aren't ready to play the game. That less years in their peak is a ridiculous argument because let's say the peak is, you know, 24 or, or well, well, no, we'll, we'll, we'll call it by years in the league for a 19 year old versus a 22 year old. So let's say your, your peak years are your fourth year through your 10th year. Well, in the 10th year, the 21, 22 year old is 31 tw or, th or 32. You know, like that's, mm -hmm. that's, you're still of, kicking butt. You can still do it. A lot of 28 to 32, 33 year olds it, in these finals yeah. right now. <laughs> well, what, what you're talking about is so on the back end if you're really worried about not getting a full <laughs> career of years. You're talking about in 12 years from now, he'll yeah. be too old to play. It's like, really? Yeah, well, enjoy the 10 years that he's kicking butt yeah. for you. It's yeah. just silly. Well, I'm excited to see how draft day shakes out along with the NBA finals and tennis grass court season. Todd, Speed, Werner, Robinson, this is fun. Thanks for coming on. We chopped up for a while today. Uh, you know you know what? Uh, with You talked about sleep deprivation at the top of the show. I, doing the show has really woken yeah, me up. Yeah, we need to do this before our shifts now. Just uh, get exactly. amped up and then work. And you, you know, I had a 2.30 call time today, so we'll do it at like 1.30 in the morning. 1.30, okay. That'd, that'd be a great idea. <laughs> yeah, 1.30. All right, Todd, thanks again for coming on the show. Always good to be here. All right, thanks to Todd Robinson for coming on the show. You can catch his stuff at Speedburn Sports, his website where he makes all of his tennis and other takes as well. Make sure you check it out. More tennis on deck. We got grass court season now. It never stops. And will the hoop season continue after tonight? We'll see. Right up next, it's Tyler Teslon on the Stanley Cup Final, which is over. Pittsburgh Penguins repeat. We talked about how they did it. It was a great game, the greatest game of the Stanley Cup final, game six last night. The Penguins win. Matt Murray gets a shutout. Sidney Crosby is the MVP of the entire playoffs. We discussed that and more. Tower tests on, on the Money Mitch Effect. Here it is now. All right, it's Sunday night. And we're recording this immediately after the Stanley Cup Finals have ended. Game six went to the Penguins, one to nothing. 
Tyler Tesla now joins the Money Mitch Effect to recap the series and Pittsburgh's back-to-back win of the Stanley Cup. Tyler, thanks for joining the show. Oh, thanks for having me on, Mitch. Well, this wasn't a good night for people that didn't want to see the Penguins win, and we're really arguing how hockey is all about parity because we did have a repeat champion. 97-98 had been the last time the Red Wings had done it. Tower of the Penguins win this game one nothing. They are Stanley Cup champs. And I'll lead off with this. Now there's been four teams that have won a Stanley Cup in the last nine years. Not exactly the uh, parity versus super team NHL-NBA argument I had in mind when I started this week. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah, it's a little little top-heavy right now, but, you know, when you have guys like Crosby that, you know, just elite and far above everyone else, it's going to make it hard. But I think it's going to shift here in the next few years with this huge influx of young talent coming in the league. I, I think we're going to start seeing some other teams contending here. Yeah, I, I would hope so um, for, for the grand scheme of things, but... Got to give Pittsburgh a lot of credit because there's a lot to digest about this individual game. But they went into Nashville, into a into a sea of just chaos. People that were fired up, rowdy from a week of partying at, at the uh, Country Music Festival. You know, they shut down the street. They really embraced this game and, and, and came out to support their team. And a really tough Nashville Predator team. But Pittsburgh went in there and won on the road to win the Stanley Cup. Not an easy thing to ever do to clinch on the road. And here's Pittsburgh doing it two years in a row. Yeah, and you could – there aren't very many buildings for any sporting leagues that you can just tell it's just absolutely crazy. But you could just feel the energy watching the game on how crazy the Nashville fans were. And, you know, obviously I think their home record this year is just incredible in the second half of the year in the playoffs. And I think, you know, the fans have a lot to do with it. Yeah, well, and I think it's fair to say – I don't know if you would agree, but this, to me, was the best game of the final. I thought start, oh, yeah. pace of play, start to finish, it had a little bit of everything. You know, The goals weren't coming. A lot of that was due to the goalies and the team defense. But I thought this was the best game of all six, and it wasn't even close. Yeah, and you know, a lot of people, maybe their argument would be there weren't enough goals, but just the pace of play and just how many scoring chances there were in the game, I mean, it was just, end-to-end entertainment the whole night. It, it reminded me a lot of the, uh, I, I can't think of that mad which game with the one overtime where it was just back and forth the whole time. I thought that's a lot of how tonight's game was. Yeah, uh, last round, I think, against uh, Anaheim, I might be. Yeah. Yeah, there was a few. And I thought both teams, especially Nashville, uh, they played pretty smart. I, I think the Predators realized, you know, there weren't many penalties in this game. I don't think Nashville had a single one. But I think part of that was realizing that if they take dumb penalties, you know, they, they're a team that plays on the edge. They like to be physical. But if you take dumb penalties like you did in game five, Pittsburgh gets a power play, they score. And in an elimination game, I think that factored in. So I thought it was a crisp game, but also smartly played. Both teams doing their part to stay out of the box. Yeah, yeah. And, I mean, that was kind of the big story, too. Nashville just couldn't capitalize on the power play tonight. You know, they had a few good scrums in front but it just seemed like every time they had a great shot or scoring opportunity the puck was rolling and they just couldn't get a solid shot off well we have to address this because it's going to be a talking point for people that aren't fans of pittsburgh are fans of the predators and just wanted to see a clean good good officiated outcome of the game was the nashville goal that got disallowed 
And Colton Sissons was the guy that fought for a puck in front of the net. Uh, that was loose, but the ref blew the whistle before, lost sight of it, which you know, Tyler, is the rule. If the ref doesn't see it, he can blow the whistle. It's a bad break. It's a brutal break, to be honest, and one that has happened and will unfortunately happen for teams across the NHL. You hate to see it on this stage, but for me, it was just lazy officiating. I don't think he meant to just screw over as much as I'd like to believe it, he, that he didn't mean to screw over the Predators, but I just think he blew it way too early and was kind of in bad position where if he would have taken that extra stride, he might have been able to see the puck a little better. Yeah, and that's what I was exactly going to say. Uh, you know, for refereeing, it's all about positioning because it's just calls like that. It's just a judgment call. Do you think it's covered or not? And he just wasn't in the right position. And, you know, from his view, he lost sight. His job is to blow the whistle there. But, you know, it hurts the Predators in the long run. It does. It was a bad break, and you could tell the energy in that building just went from, I wouldn't say it got sucked out, but it went from joy to, and happiness to just anger. <laughs> like it yeah. just completely turned, and that's huge. I mean, at any stage in the game, especially a game that at that point we kind of had a sense that goals were going to be at a premium, but that was huge. I mean, that, that changed just about everything. Yeah, yeah, and I, they had another, dis was it game one or game two? They had a dislike goal, too. Game one, first P.K. Subban yeah. shot in the first period. So. Yeah, yeah. Oh, man, it's a rough one, but... yeah. Yeah, the Predator fans have uh, been pretty outspoken about the officiating. It's a little obnoxious, I'd say, but they they put themselves in the map as a hockey city that's with the Stanley Cup, though. Yeah, the chants have been good. I've been uh, been a fan of how they're coordinated, and uh, I think they're they're doing a good job. But you touched on it too. I mean, they're not. That was not the reason they lost this game directly. It had something to do with it, but they had a five on three in the third period of a scoreless game. I mean, that's. We know what happens when you don't score on that, how momentum can flip, and it never is a good omen. Uh, I think that's what I'll remember more on the same level as that disallowed goal. Yeah, that that was my biggest takeaway was you get you know some power play chances in a tight, low-scoring game like that. You, you've got to bury one of them if you're going to win the game, and you know I ended up coming back to bite them. You know, they hit posts. They missed sh shot opportunities. They had shots blocked. But at the end of the day, that's just how it works. You know, you gotta you gotta bear down, especially against a team like Pittsburgh. Chatting with Tyler Teslin on the Money Mitch effect, we're just recapping the Stanley Cup final. I mean, there's one guy I want to talk about first, and uh, with all due respect to Sidney Crosby and all those high flying Pittsburgh forwards, let's talk about Matt Murray because what he did was shut out the Nashville Predators in games five and six. And I don't know that, you know, obviously he wasn't going to be Conn Smythe uh, in the running for that because it's a playoff award and he didn't play for much of it. But, Tyler, this is a goalie still in his early 20s that's now won two clinching games on the road to win Stanley Cups. He's won a pair of Game 7s. There's nothing more that he could do. I mean, I'm comparing him to a young Patrick Waugh. That's the only goalie I can think of that had the nerves and, yeah. and, and could just be this cool under pressure. Yeah, pretty incredible. I think I saw something right after the game was over that, you know, essentially he's still almost a rookie at this point, and he has two Stanley Cups, which <laughs> is just incredible. But now he was a story. I mean, you look at, you know, outside of tonight, the other three games when Nashville lost, it was just because Pecorino got lit up, you know, and then the games he stood on his head were the games Nashville pulled it out, and, you know, Murray's just been consistent all the way through. He's... 
you know, obviously, and you got to consider too, Flurry starts the playoffs off, and then you pull Murray in, and then he was just lights out from the get go when he got in there. So it's extremely impressive. And Mike Sullivan nailed this. I mean, he absolutely got this this goaltending dynamic right. I don't think that's going to ever get enough credit. <laughs> People outside the hockey world probably don't realize how hard this is. You have a goalie in Flurry that's won a cup, it comes in for Murray and plays great has a couple moments of weakness, and Sullivan goes back to Murray. But it's pretty obvious, to me at least, that he knew he had a gem, that he knew that Murray was going to be a difference maker down the road, and, and man, did it pay off. Yeah, and uh, like you said, in hindsight now, everybody looks like, oh, that was such an easy decision. You know, like he couldn't have even thought twice about it, but when you're in his position there, and like you said, you have a goalie who won the Cup, you know, he was playing well in the beginning of the playoffs, it's it's not as easy just to pull in one game and then Murray comes in and plays well and say, all right, we're rolling with this guy the rest of the way. That's, that's a tough decision. you got to balance out how the locker room is going to handle that decision too. So credit for that. Yeah, I was, uh, I was very impressed with Sullivan and the, and the buttons he pushed. Uh, there were some players that hadn't get, been getting much time. It, it's Hagelin who had a good game. You know, he was battling injury, wasn't playing. You know, Benino was was wounded after blocking a shot, but the guy that scores the game-winning goal, it's not Crosby, it's not Malkin, it's Patrick Hornquist, basically a fourth-liner at this point. But as you know, it's the grinders that usually make the difference in these game. a very smart play to just bank it in off Pecorine's elbow and get the goal. Yeah, that's just classic playoff hockey. I feel like always clenching game-winning goals it's like it's you know always one of the grinders usually it's just yeah and then it's never a pretty one either <laughs> yeah well you know it's funny too uh boland uh the goal for chicago it reminded me of that in 2013 yeah. just chaos exactly. at the end so it's never yeah. pretty but the penguins yeah, I, don't, I think <laughs> probably at maybe four shifts <laughs> you know like he yeah he hardly even touched the ice well, and I think, I don't know if this, you know, we'll never know if it directly caused the goal, or but I think Nashville at the end of this game was, was definitely huffing and puffing. They essentially turned two of their defensemen into grocery sticks and just played four the entire game. I know they got a great defensive core, but when you do that, I mean, that <laughs> I don't care who you are, I mean, except for maybe Eric Carlson, but they had four guys that played basically the entire game at that pace. Yeah, yeah, you could just tell they were just worn down by the end. Ellis looks like he was just beat the hell out there he's <laughs> yeah. blocking shot you know like yeah every time you just wonder if he's even going to be able to get back on the ice i know it was it was tough it was a war of attrition this was the game that i think led uh, there's no official advanced stat at least i don't think there is with guys skating slowly to the bench for both teams yeah. you felt like guys <laughs> yeah. were just going to pass out out there yeah it'll be interesting to see the injury report when that comes out tomorrow or uh, later this week yeah i mean and i think it's safe that to say that now would not be a good night to run into the ryan brothers (laughs) (laughs) probably not they're not going to be in a good mood when then you know you know rob knows the chokehold so stay away from that (laughs) but the penguins tower test on the money mitch effect they win the stanley cup they're third in the crosby unofficial crosby era he wins the Conn Smythe, and before we get to his legacy, that decision for him to get the Conn Smythe, I can't say I'm against it, but it is, a, it is a tad bit curious when Jake Gensel was scoring goals at a record rate and the highest scorer in his entire playoffs was Evgeny Malkin. So Crosby gets the Conn Smythe, but what did you think? Was it deserved or fully deserved? Yeah, I you know, it's tough for me because, you know, it's sort of throughout, and Malkin had a lot of points. I think what hurt Malkin was he just he didn't, 
do a ton in the Stanley yeah. Cup Finals. Like he kind of collected most of his points prior. Right, some recency but, I mean, bias. You know, yeah, I mean, Crosby's just so dominating <laughs> out there, and it's you know, I, I think it's hard to argue that he's not deserving of it. But I think there are definitely some other guys that you know could be in consideration. I mean, even. <laughs> You know, I know Murray, it's hard to give it to him, but it's like, I mean, he played lights out. It's almost yeah. hard to say no, too. Murray's a tough one just because Flurry played a lot, but yeah, he's up there. Here's what I think happens. I don't think it's blatantly biased to Crosby, but I think these guys think maybe they talk out loud, maybe it's in their own head, but they say, all right, well, who's the, who's in the running? Against little Crosby, Malk. well, Crosby's the best player, so that'll break the tie. So I think he that's yeah. just the automatic tiebreaker as well if the tie goes to the guy that we know is just so dominant out there, uh, as you said. And, look, I think this Stanley Cup, I mean, it cements Crosby's legacy, etches it further. It also showcased everything about who Sidney Crosby is, the good and the bad, right? Like, he dominates the games. He could score. He, he's the best player on the ice. He's, in my opinion, no doubt a top 10 player already of all time with three cups, two Olympic medals, World Cup of Hockey, you know, you name it. But he also has the chippiness through a water bottle on the ice in Game 5 and ran P.K. Subban's head into the ice with no penalty or fine. So that's Crosby. That's the whole picture for him. And, uh, you know, take with it what you will. Yeah. No, I've, I've never been the biggest fan, but you have to respect him. It's one of the, you know, as you said, I wouldn't disagree. Top 10 all time. He's, he's pretty incredible. I it is interesting with McDavid and all these young guys coming in that are getting kind of talked up as the next best thing. You know, this is kind of a <laughs> spot, good spot for him to just kind of look down saying, Oh, I'm still the top dog here. He's <laughs> not yet 30. You know, that's, that's insanely yeah. scary. If he stays healthy, if he avoids concussions, I don't know why he can't rack up a few more awards and, and see, but you know, I think the more outrageous thing is we can revisit the fact that, uh, Malkin wasn't on the top 100 list. I mean, that looks more absurd to me. <laughs> yeah. You know, but no, we got to put Bob Gainey, a, a third liner on the Canadians <laughs> dynasty teams, but we can't put Evgeny Malkin, but whatever. Um, yeah, and then the Phil Kessel addition. I mean, you just see so much depth Pittsburgh has up front. I mean, right, like Kessel as a forward on this team that doesn't have to be the guy. I mean, what other teams have weapons like that? Maybe Chicago, you could argue, but those guys usually get poached for salary cap reasons. I mean, Kessel is uh, another player that doesn't get the credit he deserves. I mean, you think about it, he's the guy that got him over the hump last year. You know, they've been close a few times, and they couldn't get there, and it's just that extra firepower up front. You know, outside of Murray, that was the other big difference. I just, Nashville just didn't have this, you know, offensive depth that Pittsburgh had, and it really showed, especially, like, power play even. They just don't have the weapons that Pittsburgh has out there on the power play. They don't. And it's scary too to think what this team might have looked like on the power play if Chris Letang would have played too. So they were without yeah. their best defenseman and they still get it done. But we'll see what happens. Tyler Telson, Money Mitch Effect. I uh, want to wrap this up talking about Nashville. You know, they <laughs> it's funny. They would have been the first 16 seed in hockey to win the Stanley Cup. The Kings were an 8 seed but not the worst team in the league. But the Predators... You know, fall short, and there's a lot of reasons why. You know, they just they ran to a, a team that had more experience, had more firepower up front. They had some bad breaks too. I mean, for for some of the early breaks, Tyler, that they had early on in the playoffs, I look at you know the goal disallowed in this game, but no Ryan Johansson in this series. You just wonder what would have been if he would have played. Yeah, that was a huge loss for them. And you know, as we were just kind of talking about, you need 
you got to have some of that offensive depth up front if you're going to win the cup. And losing him was just a killer. And, you know, Fisher wasn't 100%. I think that also hurt him as well. Yeah, I mean, he was banged up. You wonder what's going to happen if, if Fisher's going to keep going now 37 years old. They had the, the kid, Fiela, who got hurt against the Blues, another center. They were wounded for sure. And Pecorine had his shaky moments. I, you don't want to pin this game. When you lose one nothing. it's not on the goalie, but a couple games he'd like to have back. I think there's, I mean, they definitely put their city on the map in terms of hockey and prove that you can make it in a non-traditional U.S. market. I mean, I'm, I'm I'm high on this team going forward because I think they have the right mix of depth. They're going to have to tweak the roster. Now what happens when you make runs like this or guys want to get paid, but I think there's some promise with this team to sustain some of this. Yeah, it's. I'd have to say I'd be surprised if they're back in the cup next year. I It's just so hard to, re, you know, to go back yeah. when you have Chicago. A new division makes it even tougher, but... No, I mean, it was a huge step forward for them. And it was an interesting year, too, because there was a lot of hype around that team going into the season. And, you know, they got off to a rough start, and they didn't have that great of a regular season, but they turned it on when it mattered. Yeah, you know, it was uh, it was a great performance by Nashville. And plus side of it, too, I mean, there are no moral victories when you lose in the Stanley Cup, but, you know, they aced the, uh, the crowd participation part, you know, of reading Gary Bettman, so I thought they learned that on the fly pretty good. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you couldn't even hear Bettman talking out there at the end, they're just booing him to death. <laughs> Nobody hit him with a catfish, though. I don't know if I'm I'm happy or sad about that, but uh, no, it was, uh, and, and you know what, they got great, they had great ambassadors for the game. I mean, whether or not you're a fan of all these musicians, you know, or Charles Barkley for crashing the set, buzzing a little bit, but uh, they had a lot of good uh, ambassadors for the sport at those games in Nashville. Absolutely, yeah. There aren't too many um, NHL teams that can uh, bring those stars out to sing the national anthem every night and have a lift like that. No, it was uh, it was pretty remarkable. Uh, but you know, it's it's fun. We like to joke that you know there is more parity, maybe than there we want more parity than there is. But the fact that Nashville made this run an unpredictable run that ends two games short of the Stanley Cup. Pittsburgh a tough team but we got to look ahead we got to look and see if Pittsburgh can uh, can keep it going uh, but that is for another time Tyler Tesson thanks for joining the show last thing do you have any other final reactions on that hockey's over what can we look back on the 16-17 season as with Pittsburgh winning in this big youth movement um I think really just what I said earlier you know there's a huge youth movement but Crosby's still on top, and Ovechkin still can't get there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. It's that; those are really the three big points. You guys are coming. Crosby's still on top. Ovechkin's just stuck in traffic. I mean, that's yeah. basically what it is. Um, but we'll see. I mean, if I don't even want to think about the the possibility of a three peat. I mean, that's crazy. That would uh, if if Pittsburgh were to do that, and I'm not saying their their chances are good at all. But if they win three in a row, man, where does Crosby rank then all time? Yeah, and I mean, you think of, I mean, the core of the team is going to be back. So, you know, and you get Latang back at some point next year. So, I mean, I don't think it's out of the question. <laughs> yeah, I think then we got to, we'll see if uh, teams could, could lobby to get out of the Metro division like Columbus. <laughs> like, why are we yeah. stuck with all these teams? But, that's, you know, I, I look at this league for all of its its greatness and its flaws. 
Uh, I would like to see, to know an exact ruling on goaltender interference and to cut down on the reviews uh, and replay reviews. But you know, there's a lot to be excited about. And that that's the last thing I'll bring up before we wrap this up, Tower. I saw in Game Four, the referees blew down a play. Apparently, you can do that now. If you know it's a goal, you can just stop the action and blow the goal horn. I just don't want somebody to get killed going across the middle <laughs> when when the horn just goes off and they stop and someone doesn't. Yeah, it's just there. I don't. Know, I feel like the NHL just has so many reviews now going on. <laughs> it's just with the you know offsides and everything else. It's almost just district. So it's starting to feel like football slightly. Not not near to that level where you have a review every play, but mm-hmm. it's still it just it hurts the flow of the game. Yep. Well, uh, I think luckily for us, the positives outweigh the negatives. Uh, congratulations to Pittsburgh for winning the Stanley Cup. Hopefully there'll be a new champion next year for the good of everybody else in the NHL. But Pittsburgh is title town for hockey. And now I think we do have a legitimate argument for this era who is the best team. Chicago fans might be the second biggest losers behind Nashville tonight. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And next year is going to be a big year for them. I, I think everyone's going to be upset if Chicago or Pittsburgh wins next year. God, could you imagine if that's the final? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> yeah. might be the, well, ratings-wise, it would be out of the roof, but everybody would hate it. <laughs> yeah, I'd be, be angry watching. But All right, Tyler, that's going to do it for this segment. Thanks for coming on. And I guess all we got to look forward to now is the expansion draft. Yep, it'll be here before we know it. <laughs> all right, thanks again for joining the Money Mitch Effect. All right, thanks much. And that's going to do it for today's show. Thanks again to both our guests, Todd Speed, Bernard Robinson, Tyler Tesson. And thank you, everybody out there, for listening to this and all the episodes of The Money Mitch Effect, which can be found on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Google Play by just searching Money Mitch Effect. You can follow me on Twitter, MoneyMitchM21, for sports and other takes. And thanks again to Tim Adams for supplying the beats and Brian Nelson for supplying the logos. And I want to say congrats to him and everybody out there in France at Tennis Channel for doing a great job of covering the 2017 French Open. It was a good tournament. We got a basketball game tonight. And then it's if, it, if the Cavs lose, basketball season, winter sports season is over. It's just the springtime. We got tennis. We got baseball. Still some things, but it is slowing down so enjoy the hoops game tonight enjoy baseball whatever sports that you are interested in i'm mitch michaels this was the money mitch effect until next time you know keep enjoying sports